I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending October 9th. In this episode, an interview with Keith Jackson, the longtime CEO of On Semiconductor. Jackson joined the company in 2002, three years after it was spun out of Motorola and helped it grow from a conglomeration of cast-off operations into a Fortune 500 company. And Mobileye, now an Intel company, has rapidly established itself as one of the leading suppliers of processing systems supporting sensor-based, driver-assist, and autonomous driving technologies. Junko Yoshida talks with Jack Wiest, Intel's senior principal engineer and Mobileye's vice president for autonomous vehicle standards. She speaks with him about a formalized mathematical approach that teaches machines about safer driving. Also, what to expect at the IoT Security Virtual Conference and Expo. In 1999, Motorola spun off some of its less profitable semiconductor operations. Those cast-offs became on semiconductor. Motorola kept its nominally more valuable chip operations for a little while longer, but spun those off too a few years later in 2004. That operation became Freescale Semiconductor. Keith Jackson is an engineer who worked for some of the most prominent chip companies in the business. He joined Texas Instruments in 1973, then worked at National Semiconductor, TriTech Microelectronics, and finally at Fairchild Semiconductor before joining on in 2002. Through the ensuing years, Freescale had all sorts of ups and downs and was ultimately merged into NXP in 2015. Meanwhile, Jackson and On Semi just kept quietly plugging away, gradually buying one semiconductor operation after another, including a former LSI Logic Fab in Oregon, AMI Semiconductor, Catalyst Semiconductor, California Micro Devices, Sanyo Semiconductor, and his old stomping grounds, Fairchild Semiconductor. Last year, in 2019, An acquired Quantena and also a 300mm wafer fab from Global Foundries. The company now has one of the broadest portfolios in the business, is global, has a little more independence than most of its peers given its manufacturing facilities, and for the past couple of years has been floating around the cutoff point for the Fortune 500. Jackson has been involved in the industry for close to 40 years, and in September, he announced that's just about enough. He is retiring and plans to step down next year in May. Junko Yoshida and I caught up with him in his office. That's a bit of a rarity during the pandemic. Here's Junko. I'm wondering what was the strategy for OnSemi to actually buy up so many different the manufacturing capabilities over the years? Why is that? Yeah, for, yeah, for digital, uh, yeah, that moves very quickly and it's lithography driven. Uh, and so for that, we go outside. Uh, we use all the foundries for our digital, just like everyone else does. Uh, but from a cost and a um, uh, technology perspective, the analog and power products are still much better off uh, under your control, uh, making sure you can uh, basically tweak or optimize processes for your analog products uh, and get good cost scale uh, for your power products. So uh, it's really all about the markets you serve and uh, 
like everybody else, our digital comes from uh, foundries. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, you know, I was looking at the, um, the, uh, the company history and uh, looking at all the announcements you guys made over the last 19 years, and I realized that, holy moly, you guys had a lot of uh, mergers or, in you know, some sort of acquisition ag- agreements, you know, not big ones, but little ones over the years. It's, I, I counted more than 20 of them, right? Among yeah, there's them, been quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, quite a lot. So among them, which ones do you consider uh, was were most consequential to who Onsemi is today? Uh, so I think, you know, all of them, all our acquisitions have been aimed at bringing more technology capability to the company, uh, back to that vision of being a, syst- a system supplier uh, and uh, accelerating our, our time to that point uh, by, by picking up companies that had already developed those uh, competencies. Um, I think the, uh, the first most uh, impactful um, was uh, AMIS, uh, which brought us the uh, mixed signal capabilities uh, and a lot of automotive content, uh, which is one of the markets we were after. Uh, very substantial for us. Um, and then uh, the other one that uh, everybody's very familiar with is Fairchild, uh, which uh, really gave us a leg up in the high power portion uh, of power products, the high voltage portion of uh, power products. And so those two probably the most impactful. Uh, but each of the companies that we've acquired has contributed to our competencies uh, so that we can continue evolving the portfolio. Yeah, it is actually uh you actually cast a very wide net. I was surprised. I mean, it, you know, forgive for my ignorance, but I was looking at the the uh, the document. It's like a whole, you 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 actually cover a lot of grounds, and it's not just the analog or mixed signal. We talk about the CMOS image sensors. You talked about the um, the automotive. Definitely, on semi is right up there in the among you know several leading uh, image sensors uh, on semi. I guess I think on semis chips are uh, these image sensors are uh, driving all the Teslas. Is is it not Tesla Model Three? So we're the uh, we're by far the largest supplier of, of sensors for automobiles, uh, image sensors, uh, and now we've added lidar into that equation. Uh, so uh, we we continue to to push the front edge there for autonomous driving. Right. And also radar. You guys bought some somebody so the, the millimeter wave thing from the IBM Haifa, I guess. Uh huh. Yep. In uh, Israel, yes. And uh, they've got uh, radar chips out there now, and and they're not in in cars yet, but uh, we're in the design in phase. So if you look at sort of the history of the company. It's kind of interesting to me because I do remember we were writing a story about that now the Motorola's, um, you know, the uh, a part of the Motorola semiconductor group is going to be called on semi, right? And several years later, uh, Motorola also spun off a Freescale, and the Freescale really, you know, made itself known as a big automotive chip supplier. But here we are, like there's a two kind of a cousins, I don't know how you, you know, I did two ops, offsprings of Motorola had two different histories, two different trajectories. And, uh, but then sort of, when you look at some of the hottest market that they're pursuing the, you know, the hottest market that two companies pursuing, 
well, Motorola is Freescale is now part of NXP, but it's sort of the similar market. Well, certainly, I mean, uh, everybody's uh, pretty savvy in our industry, and you know where the big uh, big opportunities are, and that's generally where you go. <laughs> No, but I, I just kind of curious that, you know, I brought up Freescale because Freescale merged with NXP and NXP was about to be acquired to Qualcomm, but then Qualcomm eventually walked away from the deal. So I'm wondering why OnSemi was not part of the big M&A, you know, mania that we just experienced the last 10 years. Did you guys well, have, actually been, have uh... any talks with anybody? Yeah, we, we've been creating our own M&A, as you pointed out. And so uh, very active uh, on the consolidation side. Uh, Devin had uh, talks on the other direction. Okay. So there was always your, sort of your, I, I guess uh, the your goal was to, uh, rebuild is not the right word, but sort of grow on semi as on semi rather than looking for somebody to, um, buy you out. Yeah, our, our uh, vision really was to create a premier semiconductor company uh, with the competencies that we thought uh, uh, would allow us to continue growing and uh, setting our own destiny. And, and that's the direction we've taken. So if you give yourself a report card, where do you think you are? Like it's a, it's, it's a 100% is that, you know, you achieved your goal 100%. Where you are, are you 70% or 80%? Where do you think you are? I think we've done very well, uh, but we still have a ways to go. Um, we're uh, really just been into uh, the module side of the business for about three years now. Uh, and that's growing extremely fast, but we see that... Uh, uh, primarily as the wave of the future. Um, you can buy basically an entire module to do everything you need uh, for your as a customer. And, uh, and that kind of gets your time to market where you want it rather than having to design your own. Uh, and so we're making good progress in that. Uh, but I'd say we're maybe at the 70% mark, still have a lot, uh, a lot of room to grow. I see. If you look at the different parts, there are a lot of moving parts with you, Neil company business. <clears throat> Are there any elements that you're still looking for? I mean, is there something you think that we, you still need? Uh, we've got all of the technologies I think we need uh, to go from here. Uh, always looking for opportunities to accelerate progress here or there, but we've got, uh, we've got the technologies we need, and I think we have the access to the markets we, we really want to go after, which is automotive and industrial and, and IoT. So, uh, we, I think we're in pretty good shape uh, from a uh, strategic perspective, a lot of execution to do. And uh, if there's something else that'll help us accelerate our path, uh, always open to that. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. <clears throat> if you look at your, the markets you're in, how do you compare on semi with companies like Infineon or SD? I think they are also in the power business. I mean, it's kind of similar areas. I could be wrong, but the, how do you see yourself in when you compare it with your peers? With yeah, your, so Infineon yeah. and uh, yeah. ST are indeed competitors yeah. uh, and uh, have broad portfolios uh, yep. and have been on similar uh, types of trajectories. Yep. Uh, we like to think we can differentiate ourselves uh, in our capabilities, uh, more efficient products, uh, more complete products. Uh, and uh, at least for the markets applications that we focused on, 
uh, really it's, uh, uh, it's all about uh, beating them on, uh, on the quality of the product and the ease of use. All right. That's good. I'm going to switch gear a little bit. Um, I understand that, uh, Keith, you became the uh, chair of uh, SIA last year. That's right? correct. What yes. exactly does an SIA chair do? <laughs> <laughs> well, really, the uh, job is all about uh, bringing the industry leaders together uh, for a common uh, purpose for the industry, uh, working with governments, uh, both uh, here domestically and internationally, uh, to make sure that we're creating an uh, open uh, environment for our semiconductor industry to thrive. And uh, that, that's the, the basic structure. And then there's just a lot of, a lot of things that go on to, to make that happen. You know, that's a textbook answer. But if you look at the, what had happened this year so far, I mean, I think SIA has a, a number of really, um, you know, uh, challenges, actually, uh, this year. I mean, I'm not just SIA. I'm talking about semiconductor industry in general, you know, in, in light of the fact that the... Uh, trade war with China is accelerating, whether you want it or not. I mean, that's where the government is going. And then the spread of uh, COVID-19, which we couldn't really control. So in light of the fact that, the, you know, the all these out, outside elements, which actually I, I'm sure that, that that consumed a lot of discussions within SIA, no? Lots of discussions. Uh, obviously, back to uh, what we're trying to do as an industry is keep markets open. Um, it's a global industry. Uh, our customers are global. And so big priority on making sure that that stays open. Uh, but our talent is global also. So making sure that we can attract and recruit and retain uh, people from all over the globe uh, is a key priority. And then, of course, uh, you mentioned COVID. Uh, primary impacts there uh, are around making sure we can keep uh, our factories open and the essential goods flowing into uh, uh, all the markets that need that. So each of those elements requires uh, a lot of time and energy uh, to make sure we can continue to work on those issues. Yeah. Um, are there still outstanding issues when it comes to dealing with COVID-19, in your opinion? As an uh, in my opinion, that no, I think the industry's pretty much managed that. If, if you think for a moment about our industry, um, our products are so precise and they need such cleanliness that our factories have long been uh, much safer than the outside environment. <laughs> um, with the uh, clean rooms and the HEPA filters and all the protocols we use to make sure our uh, very tiny lithography products uh, don't have any, uh, any types of um, uh, foreign materials or, or anything airborne, uh, we've, we're pretty, pretty safe and we spent uh, several months this year convincing governments around the world of that, and they're now all convinced. And so we've got uh, full workforces and, and uh, turning out products. So I think that one is pretty much behind us. I see. So you mean SIA included, the semiconductor industry made the concerted effort to uh, sort of label itself as an essential industry so that you can keep open your business. Is that it? Well, yeah, it's part of it, but also you have to have a safe industry. So uh, it still does you no good to be essential if you if you can't keep your workers safe. And uh, I'm just saying that uh, 
we, we moved very quickly to ensure that all of our workers were safe and we had good protocols in place across the industry. And, and so we're not only we're essential, but we're also a safe place to be. All right. So another big issue that I want to talk to you about is the um, trade war with China. And um, where do we stand now? And do you think that SIA played a key role in making lobbying efforts uh, in, you know, and try to gain federal funding and tax breaks to revive U.S. chip manufacturing here in the U.S.? Oh, no. So, uh, you know, some, they're related, but let me slightly different. Uh, we have worked very hard uh, with the administration and Congress uh, to try and keep uh, any type of restrictions to a minimum. Uh, so we spend a lot of energy trying to keep things as open as we can. Uh, some progress, but obviously uh, not as much as we would like. Uh, and then secondly, it does appear that there's uh, going to be longer term trade frictions uh, and so looking at supply chains, uh, making sure that uh, we can take care of all of our customers around the world, uh, definitely looked prudent uh, to have some more uh, advanced uh, presences here in the U.S. And so we worked uh, again to get some bills across uh, for investing in, in semiconductors back in the United States. Is that going to really happen, Keith? I believe it will, yes. Okay. Do you? Th- yeah, I mean the. Yeah, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, no. The the, uh, the the does that have anything to do with the sort of a, you know percolating idea of post globalization that everybody? Well, it is a global world, and yet the, every con- con- country should be in a position to take care of uh, making their own technology. Is that the um, thrust of things, or it's something different? Yeah, I I think it's more. Um, Certain countries certainly need to pay more attention to making sure they have a secure supply chain. Not every company, every country needs to be uh, completely vertically integrated. Uh, but you need to have uh, comfort that you're not going to lose access to very critical technology. Uh, and yes, I do believe it's going to happen here in the U.S. I do think there will be uh, more advanced factories built and more investments uh, uh, here that will take place uh, as a result of all these actions over the next few years. That's quite a change when you think about it for, you know, what we went through the last 10 years, don't you think? Big change, uh, certainly in the United States, uh, they have not uh, supported industries uh, to this extent before. Uh, Totally new ground. Uh, That's not not normally the way we operate. Uh, Many of the countries that we compete with around the world uh, have a history of investing in their uh, industries, but uh, here in the U.S. we don't. Uh, so this is actually uh, a pretty significant change. Yeah. And what prompted that, you think, in your opinion? I, I think it really uh, was concern over security issues on uh, the future of technology. Uh, I think there was enough, uh, enough concern uh, uh, that collectively uh, resulted in this being an opportunity. Yeah. All right. When you say future of technology, are you talking about the uh, advanced uh, semiconductor technologies that may that that that's in the United States, for example, like uh, um, DARPA um, needs or something else? Are we talking about? Well, certainly the national security piece is a key player. That that's a key impetus, but. 
Uh, really, if you're looking at uh, artificial intelligence, at quantum computing, uh, at the things that will really make a difference uh, over the next 10 years, uh, those are, uh, are very important to countries and uh, all of those uh, factor in. But at the same time, I mean, manufacturing those chips, I mean, those processors are really going to depend on the TS TSMC coming to Arizona, no? C certainly, that's a very big step uh, and will be a big part of that equation. Yeah. All right. So as a, you know, changing your cap as a CEO of OnSemi, do you expect to get considerable funding given that your company acquired Global Foundries 300 uh millimeter fab in East Fishkill, New York? Yes. So uh, certainly that is an opportunity. We're going to be looking to expand there, put in new technologies and uh, grow that site. So um, we hope to be able to take advantage of that too. Brian, do you have something to, um, some irrelevant questions? <laughs> Um, I did kind of want to just back up uh, sort of uh, maybe some valedictory questions. Um, you've been involved in the semiconductor industry for a good long time. Um, I'm wondering if I could get you to uh, just recall um, some of the, the challenges that the industry as a whole uh, went through, um, the ones that on semi uh, helped face maybe some of the ones that it didn't. Um, and then maybe to look ahead at, uh, at uh, some of the challenges that the industry is that you're going to let the industry handle on their own after you go home. <laughs> um, I may ramble a bit because there's a lot that's gone on. I've spent my whole career in semiconductors. Um, and as you know, it's really driven by innovation. Uh, and innovative people. Uh, and so over, over the years, we've seen uh, many challenges uh, that, that have come up. Uh, we've seen challenges uh, back in the 80s from places like Japan uh, that were doing a lot of investing, just like you see from China today. Uh, and that made everybody quite worried. Uh, but the U.S. industry, again, continues to come together and, and uh, do what needs to be done. Uh, we've seen challenges over the years uh, attracting new talent. Uh, so uh, really bright university students have a lot of choices on what they want to study. Uh, and, uh, you know, frankly, in the U.S., um, we had difficulty getting uh, homegrown uh, interest. Uh, and so we had to uh, do a lot of work to get the best and brightest from around the world. Uh, and uh, those were challenges that we continued to, uh, uh, to work on. Um, and, uh, you know, really the, the key thing that's happened with semiconductors that uh, has made us uh, challenged and has shaped a bit of the industry and the consolidation is the capital intensity. So we can keep doing greater and greater and greater things, but it literally takes greater and greater and greater uh, capital to make those things happen. In fact, it's not quite exponential, but it's very, very significant. So, um for what the cost of one lithography tool today, you could have built an entire factory 20 years ago. And so, uh, you know, that's, that has really been an industry challenge uh, to figure out how do you grow fast enough and uh, keep your profitability high enough to continue that pace of innovation. And I think that's one that'll still be with us uh, uh, after I retire as well. 
Excellent. So with OnSemi, one of the things the company has been um, noted for is operating ethically and responsibly. Um, you've been named uh, one of the most ethical companies in the in the world. Uh, you're on that list. Um, you're involved in um, in uh, trying to do uh, uh, greener or or more environmentally conscious uh, engineering. Um, those seem to be, or at least. From the standpoint of a lot of the financial people I have dealt with over the years, those seem to be nice to haves, not real necessaries. Um, can I can I ask <laughs> you if you feel the same way, uh, and and to comment on 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 having a you know on, on steering a company in, in a direction that that tries to to behave as responsibly as it can? Certainly. Um- you know, this is not something that uh, was externally put on us. Uh, we believed uh, we came from a, a tough beginning, if you will. Uh, the company had a limited portfolio and, and frankly, was highly leveraged. And so one of the things uh, from day one, I believed, is that the key thing is creating trust. And the best way to create trust is to put ethics in all your dealings. So your suppliers need to trust you, your customers need to trust you, and your people need to trust you. And the uh, best way I know to do that is to set some ethical standards, uh, set some expectations of how we treat people uh, with respect uh, and uh, integrity. Uh, and so that's just been part of the DNA since the first uh, first day on the company. I think that um, what's called ESG, or environmental uh and governance and, and so forth is something that will become more and more important to uh, in investors. Uh, we're seeing them write letters uh, publicly and privately to companies now saying that that's more important to them. And I think over time it will. And it's really just a recognition of how important that is for creating trust uh, with your communities and and your people and, and everything. So I think that part is uh, pretty straightforward. It's just a, a long-held belief. Uh, the energy piece uh, also, I think, uh, something that's important, uh, but more uh, more salient, I think, to on semiconductor and the semiconductor industry is that it takes our technologies to really tackle the problems that you've got out there. Uh, you can't have a solar system without semiconductors. You can't have electric vehicles without semiconductors. You Really, it's embedded uh, in uh, all the places we want to go uh, environmentally uh, as a world to protect our world. So, uh, again, a great match. Uh, so we're pretty excited. We've been working at it for a lot of years. Uh, this is not some response that we've seen because we watched uh, uh, Harvard Journal uh, articles being written. <laughs> That's great. But one last question, Keith, that um, it is kind of unusual for the same person to stay on the CEO position in the highly competitive semiconductor industry for almost 19 years. Why do you think that happened? It wasn't like, you know, you were climbing onto the position. I mean, people wanted you to be there and that was actually brought some stability of the company, but it's like, it, it is a very unusual company when I when I think about it. Well, I think one of the keys uh, every CEO looks at is uh, what's tomorrow going to bring? Uh, 
And so the key for my longevity, uh, you'd have to ask the board, but I will tell you that what I tried to do uh, is make sure that uh, every year we could look back and say, hey, here's some great stuff. We were a better company. We're a bigger company. We're more profitable. Uh, we've come out with new technologies. So, you know, it's really all about having the energy and, and uh, vision uh, to, keep, uh, to keep growing and changing and innovating. And so that's what drives me anyway. And uh, apparently it's, it's worked for a while anyway. <laughs> so, you were, so you were hanging around. You were, you were on the scene with guys like Andy Grove and TJ Rogers yeah. and Charlie Spork. Yeah. And you were the kid, right? I actually worked for some of them. <laughs> yeah, did they treat you like the kid? Yeah. Right? No, they didn't, actually. They, uh, they were actually a pretty good group. And, uh, and I don't think they spoke to anybody like the kid. But they, uh, they definitely uh, wanted to have uh, people motivated and doing great things. And I think they all built good companies. Did you learn stuff from those guys? A lot of stuff. Yeah. A lot to learn. Yeah. And how, did you, have you passed any of what you got from the people who went before to the people you're grooming for maybe your job? I definitely uh, spend time trying to do that uh, and making sure that, uh, you know, everyone here that I've come in contact has the opportunity uh, to use uh um, painful lessons learned uh, from the from the generation before. Uh, hopefully that'll stick. Oh, you got to tell us. Yeah, well, well, give us that. one painful <laughs> lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Painful I mean, lessons we learned. We are going to close the interview without that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know if I'll give you any specific anecdotes, but I will tell you, I've now been through, I guess, my eighth or ninth downturn in the industry. Uh, and uh, every time there's one of these, uh, the world reacts as if it's the end of the world, uh, and uh, life is coming to an end. So you slash, you burn, you you uh, you know try to basically think you're going to survive, and then lo and behold, a year later, year and a half later, uh, you can't fill your orders anymore. Uh, you can't uh, take care of your customers anymore because the world really doesn't end. It really does go on. It really does recover. And so if nothing else, uh, just looking at um, setting up people to understand that there are cycles, that they're going to continue. Uh, you need to be prudent uh, and do the right things in each part of the circle uh, cycle, but don't overreact uh, and certainly think about what you're going to do when it comes back. And so as I'm leaving in 21, I'll tell you it's coming back. And uh, I hope the, uh, the next set of folks will uh, be ready for that completely. That was On Semiconductor CEO Keith Jackson, who recently announced he'll be retiring next year. The company does not have a designated heir apparent. Here's Junko asking him about On Semi's succession plan and his response. When I interviewed TI, when I interviewed Intel, every company actually, you know, as big as these companies are, they actually do have the succession plan um, in, 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 in place. Uh, what was your plan? Yeah, we have succession plans as well. Uh, we've been working with executives to prepare them uh, yeah. for many years. Yeah. Uh, but uh, just from a best practice perspective, uh, we're looking uh, both uh, at those internal secession candidates and looking externally, uh, just to just to get a lot of comfort that we've got the best person going forward. So, not much detail in that answer. 
Jackson was a little more forthcoming about the qualifications the company is looking for. Someone able to set strategic direction, who has operations experience, and is technologically savvy. But he declined to identify any likely candidates. EE Times has been covering the Internet of Things for a very long time, and one thing that is painfully clear to everyone involved is that the IoT is going to be one huge security vulnerability unless people take action. For example, earlier this week, EE Times editor Sally Ward-Foxton wrote an article about a set of formal ethical positions proposed by NXP semiconductors for artificial intelligence at the network edge. The proposed principles deal with security and safety. Now, AI and the IoT are not the same thing, but they are highly congruent. A lot of the things that are going to be enabled with AI at the network edge are going to be IoT devices and applications. The point is, IoT security is a huge, far-ranging issue. Aero Electronics is hosting a virtual conference and exposition on the subject. If you didn't already know this, Arrow owns the AspenCore Publishing House and EE Times is part of AspenCore. To find out more about the IoT Security Virtual Conference, we called up one of the organizers. Wayne Dragon is Arrow's Global Technology Manager focusing on security and connectivity. Wayne's apparently been around for a while. He said he's been doing the Internet of Things since it was called Machine to Machine or M2M. I've been reporting on the IoT for at least that long, too. Wayne, tell us about the market and about why the IoT Security Virtual Conference is going to be something that people are going to want to attend. Well, it's definitely going to be something people want to attend. We have a huge growing market for connected devices, and today over 70% of them are said to be vulnerable to security attacks. And when you look at that, combined with those billions of connected devices and everybody trying to hack into different things, whether it's you know a small-time hacker or nation-state type of attacks, we need to be able to stop them from an OEM perspective, or at least prevent them and think about them when we're doing our designs. So you're talking about designing with security in mind. Uh, so I imagine the, um, the program at the conference is going to have speakers addressing that issue. Absolutely. So we have the technology leaders in the industry that are going to be there. We're going to have some great panel discussions about legislation and regulation. We're going to be talking about all sorts of things from our suppliers that are key suppliers, people like Infineon Technologies. Uh, we're going to have folks from the PSA certified organization, Microchip, NXP, Silicon Labs, ST, and to name a few. And we're going to go through multiple sessions, technical sessions, where we learn about how to do that, how to take technology and use it to build security into your original equipment manufacturer designs. Great. So there's going to be a lot of practical information for, for engineers um, to bring home to their jobs and figure out how to, to start or, or if they're not already doing uh, some, some design for security, They'll, they'll get some good tips on how to, to 
improve techniques, that sort of thing? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what our target is. We want to talk to our engineers that are developing these commercial and industrial products that have to have security. It's a mainstay. If you don't have it, you're not protecting critical data or IP that needs to be done. So how do you take whether it's hardware, software, or services around your products and secure them for the life cycle. It's not just in the beginning, but you have to think about the product life cycle and how I'm gonna continue and do things like over the air updates and keep the products safe the customer's data safe and your IP safe. So those are those types of technology discussions that we're going to be having. Excellent. Tell us a little bit about the conference itself. Uh, how many days are there going to be parallel tracks? Will they be single track? How's the, uh, how's the, the, IoT Security Conference going to be presented. Oh, absolutely. There's a two-day conference, October 15th and 16th. So similar tracks for each day where we're going to set up and have an opening technology discussion or keynote. That'll be then followed by a panel where we have some industry leaders sharing the knowledge that they've learned about different technologies, whether it's standards and regulations, or maybe, you know, in the other cases, how do you do uh, security implementation or how that it's affected by regulations and then the flow of the thing will have multiple technology um, presentations by key suppliers in the semiconductor industry those will be filled out and then after that we have a virtual booth set up where we have even more information where an engineer or a technology leader in a company can go in learn about from the various uh, people who are teaching us about the event that lived it, that helped create these devices uh, and technology solutions so they can actually go to these different booths and get additional information, whether it's webinars, um, downloadable information like apps notes or white papers. There's going to be live chat capability, so you can actually talk to the uh, experts live during the uh, sessions and uh, go ahead and get some information right from those virtual booths. So it's definitely got a few we're in a new world with our uh, coronavirus, unfortunately, and so we're trying to keep a personal connection where you can actually chat and kind of converse live in those booth environments. So we really encourage people going and talking to those experts there as well. Wow, sounds really well thought out. Wayne, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. And we look forward to having everybody come to the show and learn all about security and how they can get safer products to market faster. Yeah, I think we're all hoping about that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Take it easy, Wayne. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Arrow's Wayne Dragon. After we wrapped the segment, Wayne mentioned the importance of an approach called Secure by Design. Many companies building IoT devices lack the resources to design in security. Some smaller companies, for example, might not be able to afford to hire someone dedicated to security. It's also true that there just aren't enough engineers with the relevant expertise to go around. Secure by Design is an approach that makes security expertise available to companies that need it. The address for the conference, for anybody who wants to register for it, is www.arrow.com slash security expo. And security expo is all one word. If you're listening to this podcast after October 16th, you can still go and review some of the content.
By this time, EE Times readers and listeners of this podcast are familiar with the notion that fully autonomous vehicles are not going to be widely available anytime soon. The reason is because making autonomous vehicles safe enough is a lot harder than originally anticipated. The delay has led some companies to shift their focus from fully autonomous driving to technologies that help make humans better drivers. That's called Driver Assist, also known by the acronym ADAS. That shift in focus created a wider understanding that technologies for autonomous driving are different from technologies for ADAS. That said, driving is driving, and driving safety is driving safety. Intel's Mobileye operation develops processing technology for sensor-based self-driving car and advanced driver assistance systems. The company had begun to think about what the safety model should be for autonomous vehicles. Jack Wiest, who is Vice President, Autonomous Vehicle Standards at Mobileye, reached out to my colleague Junko Yoshida, one of the leading journalists covering the automotive industry. He wanted to talk about this safety model, which he described in a rather unique way. Here's Junko. So I I heard from Robin, your PR person last week, and she told me, you know, Jack wants to talk about bumper balling. And I said, (laughs) what is the bumper balling? So I think bumper balling has something to do with RSS, responsibility, what is it? Responsible, sensitive safety, RSS. Okay. So let's start from bumper balling. Define bumper balling. How it has anything to do with RSS. <laughs> That's a great question. And you might think yeah. uh, at the surface that there's nothing to do with bowling and automated driving, <laughs> but I'll, I'll try to make the connection in a way that makes sense. Okay. Um, so you're correct. Uh, responsibility sensitive safety was our safety model that we first released in 2017. And what it defines, um, it's a mathematical model that defines a safety envelope along with proper responses that the vehicle should take. Um, so that if the automated vehicle is following RSS, uh, it should never initiate an accident. Uh, and if all of the other agents around the vehicle are operating according to reasonable and foreseeable assumptions about their behavior, then we should always be able to respond uh, to the behavior of others. Uh, and so do, really it does everything that we can to try to, uh, to, to prevent an accident from happening either from by our own cause or from the cause of others. So what does this have to do with bumpers, though, uh, and some of the recent announcements? We had always imagined RSS as being something for driverless vehicles. Um, but we thought at one time, what if we were to put RSS in a human-driven vehicle? And what mm. if RSS could, on, on a preventative basis, preemptively intervene into your driving task as a human to help you avoid making mistakes? and to help you respond to bad behavior, say, by other drivers. And so it's kind of a way um, then if you think about if, you know, if you're not a terribly great driver, uh, RSS can help you be a much better driver because it's sort of always working there and protecting you uh, in the background and preemptively braking, preemptively turning you back into your lane, not in an emergency sort of way like AEB systems, but in a very smooth uh, preventative standpoint. And so in that way, we come back to bowling. I'm a terrible bowler. 
My mom's actually quite good at it. Um, and so when I bowl, though, I can bowl a lot better when you have bumpers in the lanes. And bumpers are these inflatable tubes that you put into the gutter lanes on each side of the bowling alley so that when you roll the ball down the alley, it might bounce around from side to side, and you'll eventually get to the pins without going in the gutter. <laughs> So maybe in the same way, RSS in a human-driven vehicle helps you get to your destination without bumping into things along the way. Wow. I mean, I thought that bumper bowling is for kids, but I guess it's, uh, it could be the novice drivers or even experienced drivers who really need to be reminded of uh kind of defensive driving, isn't it, in a way? You're right. You know, and even the best of us, uh, we're, yeah. we're guilty of looking at that phone when we shouldn't have or being distracted by the squirrel outside the window or something else, you know? <laughs> you know, And that's one yeah. of the other really important differences here is we humans at the end of the day have sensors, um, our eyes, you know, ears, uh, particularly the, our vision that's looking just yeah. forward. Um, the thing about RSS and the ability to put it into a human-driven car with 360-degree sensing, you can get protected then from potential accidents that you don't even see because they're in your blind spots or they're behind you or something like that. And so right. it's really the combination of that safety model with supervision technology about sensing from a 360-degree environment that differentiates it from traditional driver assistance systems. Okay, let's talk a little bit about math. Um, the, when I actually rewatched uh, some of the presentations you have done in the past on the uh, RSS, we're talking about explicit traffic rules versus implicit traffic rules. And uh, you're talking about RSS is, in the end, it's about formalizing those implicit traffic rules so that it can be interpreted by machine. So tell me that what rules actually are you teaching under RSS, uh, those um, uh, ADAS or in this case, uh, autonomous vehicles? Mm -hmm. so, so the first rule of RSS is really about following at a safe distance. Um, and so this is kind of one of the most basic examples we could think of, which is you're following another vehicle. And so how RSS would work is let's say, um, as you're, and we've all experienced this, uh, where you set your cruise control and it's a fixed speed. And what does the car in right. front of you do? They're constantly like adjusting their speed and like, ah, I gotta turn off my cruise control. Now I can turn it back on. I wish they would just drive one speed, but they don't, right? It, Humans just don't, yeah. we're not well behaved always like that. Yeah. And so RSS in the context of a mobilized supervision ADAS system, what it would do is it would preventatively break, make small micro braking maneuvers. So you're just driving and you might not even notice it, but RSS is calculating exactly what a safe distance is based on the safety model. Um, and if that vehicle in front of you varies its speed a little bit, based on the RSS formulas, the mathematics, um, our car, the car that I'm driving, or the autonomous car in the case of a driverless car, is going to then apply just a little bit of brakes. We might not even notice it. So not an emergency brake, because it's not an accident type scenario, but according to RSS, it's I'm going to get into what we call a dangerous scenario if I don't apply a little bit of brakes. So the system would apply a bit of brakes and then probably let off. Apply a bit of brakes, let off, you know, where you might not even notice it. Now, if the car in front of you were to aggressively uh, slam on their brakes, then that braking profile goes from a little bit of brakes to then a more, you know, significant amount of braking to still avoid the accident. 
but the point is, is it's kind of a always in the background, uh, you know, kind of safety capability that's working with you. Uh, it would work the same way for lane change maneuvers. Um, so let's say, uh, again, where you might have lane change capability uh, that's still um, hands-free, you know, in the case of this uh, mobilized supervision hands-free ADAS, or in the case of a driverless vehicle, the vehicle wants to change lanes. A rule number two about RSS and the, the lateral safe distance calculates how much distance do I need to have laterally between vehicles that I'm driving next to. And that would tell the vehicle or the driver, is this a scenario where it's safe for me to make this lane change and move from this lane to the other? Or am, going, am I going to cut off this car and get into an unsafe lateral situation? So those are two examples of how we use the mathematical calculations about really what is a safety envelope around the vehicle to inform and protect a human driver in the case of the supervision hands-free ADAS or to make sure that the automated vehicle is making good driving decisions in the case where there's no driver at all. So uh, I think last time you and I talked about is that uh, you were talking about that the RSS becoming IEEE standard. I think it's been discussed at the, uh, it's, I think, P2846, is that right? Yep, that's correct. So how far are we? I mean, um, I think the, the, uh, the, the initial goal was at the end of this year or early next year to have some kind of a first draft of the standard or yeah, that's correct. can you update us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. In fact, I just came out yeah. of our full work group meeting <laughs> prior to talking with yeah. you here. Uh, and yeah. so I'm pleased to report that, uh, yes, as you noted, we've contributed RSS uh, model uh, to this work group and, and the concepts behind RSS in terms of assumptions and the role of the automated vehicle needing to make reasonable and foreseeable assumptions about the behavior of other users, such as what is the maximum braking capability of the vehicle that I'm following, for example. These concepts from the RSS model uh, and others is really the first focus area for the standard work group. Uh, and so far, we are still on track, despite COVID and everything else, to have a first version of the standard by the end of the year. And we really look forward to sharing it with the world at that time. You know, I have a basic question. Once you actually have this RSS in your AV stack, for example, like the uh, announcement you made with uh, China Geely last week, that is uh, certainly you are providing them not only... Um, well, you're providing not only the uh, supervision that consists of, um, was it 11 or 12 cameras? 11, 11 cameras plus um, the AV full stack, right? And I can see the RSS can be implemented inside the stack, but what if I'm participating in IEEE and I have my own AV stack? How do I implement the RSS then? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the things that we're doing uh, with the standard is, as while we have contributed RSS, other companies have contributed their safety models as well. Uh, and we're committed to making sure that the standard is technology neutral. And so the standard will not require anyone to implement any specific version of something, it will not require them to have a particular kind of chip or sensor uh, or whatever. So it's entirely possible that you could build your own safety model that's still conformant with the standard. Um, just as we believe RSS would, would be a safety model that would be conformant with the standard as well. Um, and so at this point, you know, we're solving a problem for the industry um, that if we don't really start making some positive contribution on, 
Um, there may not be an automated vehicle industry for us to sell into. Uh, and so now is not the time to kind of get specific about winners and losers, but really trying to do something for the good of the whole industry. Because um, we all have this common problem and we all need to rely on this ability to, to balance safety uh, and utility based on these assumptions uh, about, other, uh, about other road users. May I ask that in the uh, current discussion at IEEE, um, um, I know this is going to be technology neutral, but companies like Waymo or Tesla are part of this discussion? Uh, yeah, I'm very pleased to have Waymo as uh, my vice chair. Uh, Uber is our secretary, and we have over 25, I think, at last count, companies across the OEM community, the Tier 1 community. Uh, we even have some government representatives there, some research institutions. Um, it's a wonderful mix of different entities. Um, and so, so, again, from that standpoint, when you have that many people at the table, um, clearly what you're going to come up with has got to work for everyone. You know, and so that commitment to, to, to something that's technology neutral, it's not requiring people to implement something from Mobileye, just as it's not requiring people to buy um, a chip from some other vendor. Um, you know, it's, it's really about solving this safety challenge uh, for the whole industry. And that's why we, that's why we published RSS in 2017 openly. It's why we contributed it, because we just want to help solve this problem. You know, it's, it's yeah. not about forcing a particular implementation of a safety model down anybody's throat. Um, it's, about, uh, it's about doing the right thing for the industry and collaborating with governments on what does driving safely mean. And a really important part of that, probably the most important part of it, are the assumptions. You know, what are we allowed to assume about the behavior of other uh, road users, pedestrians, whatever, as automated vehicles make driving decisions? Yeah. All right. Speaking of assumption, um, I actually spent quite a bit of time, maybe uh, during the COVID-19 days, I have probably too much time on my hands. I was <laughs> watching the uh, uh, Mobileye's video uh, that Mobileye made public uh, in January. But I also watched uh, the May video, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a kind of interesting because it's a drone. There's a drone footage. Uh, also, that uh, there's a view of the what the safety driver is doing. And then on top, there's a visualization software is uh, is actually displayed. These visualization software, by the way, is this showing what the machine is seeing, or is it for the human? consumption? It's an excellent question. It's a bit of both. Um, and so first I'll say that it, it is giving you a representation of what the machine is seeing. Um, mm -hmm. If you look carefully, um, you'll notice that certain vehicles or other objects that are seen by the vehicle will change color from time to time. And that's an indication of how those objects are behaving in relation to the planning function of the vehicle, um, or as we've talked about in the context of RSS, you know, a vehicle makes a sudden braking maneuver, uh, you'll likely see that vehicle change color um, because that's an indication that the automated vehicle software recognizes that, hey, perhaps I'm in a dangerous situation, I need to perform a proper response, and so I'm, I'm noting this agent or this object differently um, than others. It's very, it's very technical, this display that you can see in the videos. So certainly you could imagine that when we have a solution for consumers and passengers, 
our friends and family, not from our industry. It might be a bit more simplified, might be a bit easier to understand. But right now, it's definitely a, a mix of both what the vehicle is seeing, but also a rich technical display of the internal functions of the software as they're working so probably a little too much detail for our friends and family no no but but yeah it's it's interesting so so what i'm getting at is this um when you talked about the safety model that needs to be sort of spelled out in a manner that machine can interpret what the what the model is Mm -hmm. but also it is deeply cultural so it needs to be adjustable to the uh, cultural differences. For example, in Israel, I noticed that when cars, um, you know, for example, going to take the uh, um, unprotected left turn and the car is kind of inches out so that they sort of like a creating an opening for itself. It is very, you know, I wouldn't, well, it's, it's actually Pretty aggressive in my in, in my taste, but it's because I wouldn't do that. But it's it's probably necessary in Jerusalem, and I'm thinking like, how are you going to change? I'm I'm assuming that sort of a behavioral thing is actually baked into the AV stack. Are you going to change that to Chinese version? How does that work? Yeah, it's an excellent question, and, and really, it's it's kind of the the brilliant part about having these implicit driving rules that we were talking about earlier embodied in the safety model, not necessarily Mm -hmm. in all of the rest of the automated driving stack. Okay. Because of going back to these assumptions, right, that we're defining in the IEEE standard, if we plug in different values for the assumptions, you directly impact and result in different behavior by the automated vehicle as it's operating on the road. So, for example, um, if the the amount of um, um, safe distance from a lateral standpoint of the sides of the car in countries like Israel, people drive much more closely next to each other than we do here in the U.S., right? But that's because there's certain values plugged into those assumptions about what is a reasonable and foreseeable kind of lateral maneuver by those other agents. Now, in the U.S., we could use different values, which might mean that some of those maneuvers you see in that video in Jerusalem may not be possible in the U.S. because we set the balance differently. Or in China, you could use different numbers entirely. And so that's the beauty, actually, of separating um, your AI functions in the vehicle that are that are trained, you know, through through various data sets from the safety model, because you can tune the safety oh, model. So it's separate. Yes, ah. and then directly be able to see different performance um, in in the vehicle in the real world. And so that scalability is really important, right? Because, but to contrast that, if you've only done testing in one place in the world. And you don't have any kind of safety model that has adjustable parameters where you can change the values. It is going to be a lot more work to deploy that in new cities where people might drive differently. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize those are separate. That's interesting. So let's talk about Geely uh, deal. That's a, well, the Amnum said that this is a game changer. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so some people are questioning, is this really a game changer? But I think it's a big deal. It's a big deal because mobilized, uh, IQ5 is going to be first time it's implemented in cars in in volume right mm-hmm. and it's going to start start 2021 is that it 
Uh, I believe it is 2021, and, 2021, and yeah, yeah. If, if Amnon says it's a game changer, then it must be, right? So I think uh, <laughs> no, he's a very he's a, question, Amnon. Exactly. Right? <laughs> he knows what he's talking about, trust me. I've had the pleasure of working but, with him for some yeah. time. But what's really important about it, though, yeah. um, and one of the key things that shouldn't be missed is really the record time in which we are taking a capability that right today, as you and I are talking, is on the road in Israel being tested with our camera only automated vehicle fleet. That same software, those same chips that are in testing today is gonna be in the market now uh, in a very short time frame. You know, typically the design life cycle for automotive, as you well know, could be four to five years. And so really that's kind of the game changing thing about this is not only is it a commercial application of our automated vehicle software and silicon, but it's getting to market in record time, you know, yeah. two, three times uh, faster than anything else. So that's really the, the kind of the key thing, you know, less than a year really from where we are right. today to commercialization. Uh, the other thing that's really, really interesting about it that also is a game changer that I'm not noted is also the over the air update capabilities. And so here right. you've got a platform that will be in a consumer car where Mobileye will be able to update the capabilities of, of that supervision technology um, over time. Um, and so the safety features could evolve, they could improve, they could adapt. And so that also uh, for the first time for Mobileye to be able to directly update uh, the solution in the car uh, is, a, is, a key, is a key game changer as well. Okay. Um, I have actually, I just thought of it. I have a question about this over-the-air update. I think that's what everybody is um, really uh, wanting it, and uh, it's it's needed. And yet, how much control do you have over ECUs that are beyond the reach of uh, the chips that uh, Mobileye is providing? Well, that's another element of the of this uh, of this deal that I didn't mention. Also, is that in addition, you know, typically what we would do is provide just the chip and a software, uh, and then a part, uh, you know, a tier one partner would put that together as a traditional right. design lifecycle. Not that there won't still be, you know, uh, tier one or other integrators as part of this. But what's different is is Mobileye is providing not just the solution stack with the hardware and the software, but also um, the, 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 the portion of the platform that interfaces with the vehicle buses and performs the actuation as well. Uh, and so called a multi-domain controller, essentially this is, this is, it becomes then a complete subsystem for ADAS capability, where it's not just Mobileye providing the camera and then that goes, that, that out data goes somewhere else. This is the complete solution. It's, it's kind of like an automated driving you know, kit all in of a, in itself in terms of its capabilities, like we say, coming from the camera-only cars that we have driving around Jerusalem, but it contains all of those elements. And so when the over-the-hour update happens, it can update not only just the driver assistance software, um, but it could also uh, be updating some of the multi-domain controller software as well that's doing more of the dynamic control, uh, you know, functions for the vehicle also. So it's starting to provide that ability to update more than just uh, you know, the traditional functions you would think of from Mobileye. I see. Okay. But it doesn't really, con- when you say multi-domain, multi-domain is actually limited to the the uh, the vehicle's actuation part that, that helps the uh, assisted driving, no? That's correct. Yeah, it is still limited yeah. to that. You're yeah. right. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Very good. So um, now, just just to be on the record, how long uh, has Mobileye been testing AV software um, thus far in Israel? Uh, wow. You're going to put me on the spot there. Um, <laughs> I'm going to take a guess and yeah. say, yeah. So first, forgive me. I don't know the exact number, but I believe it's okay. a, it's been at least a period of, say, two years, probably year and a half to two okay. years, I would think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Mobilize made some incredible progress very fast, you know, and I think part of that comes from their design philosophy where it's it's you don't just, you know, code up a bunch of stuff and throw it on the road and see what happens. You think deeply yeah. about the design of the system and you try to understand right. what the design looks like on paper and do formal right. verification of a design built on paper. Um, right. And it's uh, uh, I'll, I'll give you another strange analogy. We're remodeling our home right now and and we're going through some tile work um, and we had a tile person come in and they didn't think at all about the design before they started slapping tile up on the wall. And then at the end, it looked like a mess. And so guess what? It's all coming off. We're starting over on paper. We're designing it in advance and then we're putting the tile up and now we're going to have a beautiful result. So in other words, uh, taking more time up front, you know, to yeah. really think about what you want to build and is it the right way to build it? is a faster path to the end state than coding right and then trying to fix it later. So in other words, that you you use the terminology formal ver verification. The fact that you guys only depended on cameras, did it make it easier to do the formal verification faster? Yeah, it's actually just separate from that. So um, the formal verification okay. piece is used for the safety model. And so the safety oh, model okay. is formally verified. But you bring up a really right. excellent point, though, about what about perception? What about vision? Um, you know, those systems are probabilistic by, by their nature. Um, they are known um, to have failures by their nature. It's just the nature of vision algorithms, and there's no perfect sensor on the planet that gives you 100% accurate sensing all the time for its lifetime in the car. And so here what you have to do is think differently about how do you want to solve this problem uh, to make sure that you're delivering a sensing capability that is sufficient. Uh, and so here we have a unique approach because our camera subsystem is so strong and because we have the ability to operate vehicles, as you've seen by the videos on, on the roads in Jerusalem, with camera only, we have a separate vehicle that has radar and LIDAR only. And that vehicle is going to have the same ability to operate to the same degree as the camera system. Now you combine those together and what you have is you essentially have redundant but diverse sensing implementations that are operating in parallel. So we can produce two world models and combine them as opposed to only being dependent on one world model and, and depending on it alone for accuracy. Um, and so what this means then is you can think about it uh, as, as a kind of situation, let's say you had an iPhone in one pocket and an Android phone in the other pocket. You know, the odds of both of those phones failing in, at exactly the same time <laughs> is extremely yeah. rare and so goes right. the same logic right the, lo the the logic that the camera subsystem would fail in exactly the same way at the same time as the radar and lidar subsystem that's separate means that the probability of a sensing failure for the system overall um, is much 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 lower than you would have if you have if you were relying on one you know sensor type um, overall or one sensing channel overall 
So I didn't realize this. So you guys actually have another vehicle just using Lighter and Raider? That's correct. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, we do, and so we're. we're oh, we're that's developing. interesting. So, mm-hmm. how's that going? Is it is it coming along the same level of the um, autonomy that your perceptions, the uh, the camera only supervision has achieved, or are they still working on it? Uh, everything's still in development, so we're still working on it. Um, but the intention is is that when we deliver a commercial driverless vehicle that it will contain both the camera-only subsystem as well as the radar and LIDAR-only subsystem, and they'll be working in combination. The reason why we test separately is because, you know, if you put them all in the same vehicle first, nobody's going to believe it that our car is actually driving with camera only, for example. Uh, But you can look at the car. There are no radars. There are no LIDARs on that car. It's truly camera only. And if you look carefully enough around the streets of Israel, you also see a car from ours um, that has radar and LIDAR only. And so, but we think that that, what we call true redundancy, is an important way to approach um, sensing and to try to make sure that you reduce the chances of of a sensing failure as much as possible. And, and there's one more thing that's really interesting to think about here, too, is what, what does a sensing failure mean? What constitutes a sensing failure? Um, we're very happy to contribute an, an article to your, to your forthcoming book that everybody should go buy on this yeah. topic, <laughs> Sensing and Automotive. Um, but, uh, but what is a sensing failure? If I, if I have a classification error for an object that's 300 meters away off the side of the road in a park, is that a sensing failure? Well, by some measure it is if all I'm doing is I'm looking at the sensor by itself in a vacuum and I'm feeding some test data in, I'd say, well, it missed this classification of this mailbox in a park 300 meters away. Well, who cares, right, from a safety standpoint? It's irrelevant. So we have to think about sensing failures in the context of a sensing failure that would lead to a safety incident. And that's where combining a sensing model like we have with true redundancy with a safety model like RSS can provide you much more intelligent understanding of what a sensing failure means and would it lead to a violation of the safety model. Because if you're in violation of the safety model, then you're in the, you are at an increased risk, you're in a dangerous situation, and maybe something you know, from a safety standpoint you know, could happen. Um, but it's important to look at it from a system level perspective, you know, not just the sensors by themselves. All right. Very good. Okay. No, I, I learned a lot. Usually I do, but uh, thank you very much uh, for, for the interview. My really, pleasure, Thanks Jacko. for coming to the show. Always a pleasure talking to you. That was Jack Wiest from Intel's Mobilized Sensor Operation. During their discussion, Wiest mentioned Aspencore's book on the automotive market. Well, since he brought it up, Junko and the rest of AspenCore Media staff have written a book that examines how sensing and decision-making technologies can help people as they drive, about some of the remaining challenges to implementing those technologies, and how soon they might arrive. The book collects some of our recent reporting, along with new contributions from EE Time staff and from some of the leading thinkers in the tech and automotive industries. We expect to have that book available on October 19th. There will be a link to the book on the EE Times homepage then. And that's a wrap for the weekly briefing for the week ending October 9th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on iTunes, Android, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com podcasts, you'll find a transcript 
along with links to the stories we mentioned, along with other multimedia. This podcast is produced by AspenCore Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. That's a beautiful way to wrap up, but I can't wrap up there. I got to know, have you ever met the slightly less famous Keith Jackson? (laughs) Uh, No, I never have. I always enjoyed watching him on Saturdays, but uh, never got to meet him.